I want your loving, I want your revenge. You know, just really just pump that song on there because that's what it is. This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome back our returning celebrity guest scorer, Rob Conlon of Westport Studios. Gentlemen, twice in one week, this is fantastic. (laughs) It feels like forever since we've seen you. Mm Mm-hmm. It has been a long time, and then I showed up twice in a row. So <laughs> that's uh, that's probably why it feels a little little long. Yeah, because I was actually looking back at my calendar. I'm like, when was the last time I saw these guys? Well, and we're going to need to talk about that, because I think this might be the longest gap in between movies now for your next appearance, which is until next April. Right. That's a long time, because I was actually, I was clicking ahead in my calendar, like, when's the next time I'm on? Other than like, oh, next week. But like clicking ahead and I'm like October, November, and it's, it's coming up in 2024. And, you know, I, I obviously enjoy being with you guys and doing this with you guys, but uh, sometimes that's okay. You know? <laughs> oh, I know you got a busy schedule, my man. If there's something, we, if there's something we can slide in there though, that, that works too. That's always fun. So. Well, we'll the revisit that. ones are some of the easier ones. And uh, if, that's true. if you find one that you want to like truly revisit, cause I think I have you pegged for uh the last crusade discussion because you weren't oh, around sure. for the first yep. one. Yep, yep, yep. That is those are kind of like mini mini episodes. We basically just redo the Stanley rubric. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool, good deal. Well, this is seven or six. This is seven. Seven. Lucky number seven this time, which is fantastic. And your hat went out in the mail on Monday. No, <laughs> you guys are too kind. Thank you so much. <laughs> so next time you will have it, and you can wear it for yourself. Yes. So. Good stuff. But to the matter at hand, tonight for our 173rd episode, we discuss the epic trilogy conclusion film, The Dark Knight Rises from 2012, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, co-written by Jonathan Nolan, score by Hans Zimmer, starring Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Michael Caine as Alfred Pennyworth, Gary Oldman as James Gordon, Anne Hathaway as Selena Kyle slash Catwoman, Tom Hardy as Bane, Marion Cotillard as Miranda Tate slash Talia Al Ghul, Joey King as young Talia Al Ghul, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as John Blake, Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox, Matthew Modine as Peter Foley, Ben Mendelsohn as John Daggett, Bern Gorman as Philip Striver, Nestor Carbonell as Anthony Garcia, Juno Temple as Jen, Alan Abutbal as Dr. Leonid Pavel, Aiden Gillen as Bill Wilson, Brett Cullen portrays U.S. Congressman Byron Gilly, Chris Ellis as Father Riley, Tom Conti as Prisoner, Daniel Sunjata as Mark Jones, Liam Neeson as Ra's al Ghul, Josh Pence as young Ra's al Ghul, Killian Murphy as Dr. Jonathan Crane, India Wadsworth as the wife of Ra's al Ghul, John Nolan as Douglas Fredericks, and William Devane as President of the United States quite a cast list and to be honest i was forgetting how many big actors were in this movie and a u.s senator 
Well, that's because he's in every Batman movie until he dies. <laughs> Although he's not a U.S. senator anymore, is he? I thought he retired. Well, he did. He did? Okay. Yes. Patrick Lee. Yes, of Vermont, right? Um, I thought it was Connecticut. No, it's definitely not Connecticut. Might be. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Recognition for this movie, The Dark Knight Rises, was released on July 20th, 2012. The film grossed over $1 billion worldwide, making it the second film in the Batman film series to earn $1 billion, and the highest grossing Batman film to date. In addition to being Nolan's highest grossing film, it became the seventh highest grossing film of all time at the time of its release, as well as the third highest grossing film of 2012. It was named one of the top 10 films of 2012 by the American Film Institute. The Dark Knight currently holds an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 78 score on Metacritic, higher than I thought, and a 3.7 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, gentlemen, as we start each week, and actually, I uh, can do it properly this week. Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? Well, I watched it with you. That's about Not the, the first extent. time. What? You didn't watch this with me the first time. I didn't? Nope. Then I'm not sure when I watched it. So I distinctly remember this conversation because I was still in lacrosse because it was while I was doing campaign work and it would have been my super senior or no, in between my fourth and fifth year of uh, undergrad at lacrosse. Mm -hmm. And I went to see it on the midnight showing or whatever. I distinctly remember calling you like on Sunday and saying that I had gone to the movie and you're like, oh, yeah, we did two yesterday. Uncle Andy was in town and we were looking for something to do. So we all went and I'm oh. like, you went to a Batman film without me. I don't remember that. Huh. Okay. <laughs> I was just shocked that you would bother to go to a, a Batman movie. And that's, that's what I knew that the dark Knight had huge impulse power over everybody in the culture. If it could get you to go to a comic book film without me, like basically forcing you, I think we had something. I went to see the original Superman. In 1978? Yes. Engineer High. Was there anything else back to do in 78? <laughs> well, we can talk about that in a couple of weeks. Neither of us were around, Rob. I know. <laughs> Getting back to that time question. Now, I remember it was much like my viewing of The Dark Knight. I went and stood in line at like 7 o'clock for a midnight showing. And held the place in line for like 20, 25 people that all were doing campaign work with me. And we went and saw it. And then I was devastated the next morning because there was a rather tragic event that I don't need to mention. But I was like, you do this at a Batman premiere? You're breaking my soul. Rob, what about you? Yeah, this one was one of the the movies for me that was almost, I don't want to say it was tacked on for me. But I did not see this in theaters. I actually, this was sort of like the, you bought the first two, you might as well buy the trilogy to complete it in this case. You know, we like, myself and my wife, we liked, you know, Dark Knight so much. We, you know, bought Batman Begins and it's like, oh, there's a third one out. Okay, cool. I mean, at this point in time, I was, you know, it was 2012. So I was, I just moved back to Milwaukee area and I was working, working for the brewers at that point in time. And I didn't have time to see this thing. <laughs> it, was, it was one of those things where uh, I was at that time working 100-hour weeks at Miller Park. And it's like, I don't have time to go to a movie, man. I don't even have time to sleep. <laughs> so 
that job taught me a lot uh, in this case. A couple, couple things that come in handy today, a couple things that uh, I learned early, early enough in life, which is great. But anyway, back to the movie part of it. Yeah, this was kind of just that tacked on add-on thing. I think I picked it up one year at a, like Walmart has those Black Friday Blu-rays for like three to five bucks. And I just grabbed like, at that time, my wife and I were were not a, were a very humble means. It was like, oh my gosh, you know, we can get six or seven Blu-rays for like twenty bucks. Like, hell yeah, man! So it's cheap entertainment, and you know, we knew the first two were good, so we figured the third one can't be a stinker. So here we are, and now I watch it like quarterly, <laughs> which is more than me. Value, value. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, it's interesting that you say the tacked-on version because I have read in multiple places that. Christopher Nolan never specifically set out to do three movies. He never really envisioned it as that type of series. Right. And so you can kind of feel that the story doesn't have the same connective tissue that the first two seem to have. It does have a lot of allusions back to the first movie, but it really kind of, for being the third movie in a trilogy, does not do a lot of work based on the second movie, other than in relationship to the consequences that you were going to need to answer following what happened at the end of the second movie. So other than dealing right. with the Harvey Dent kind of issue, a lot of this movie really felt more like a sequel to Batman Begins than it did to The Dark Knight. I completely agree, and I think that part of that is due to the death of Heath Ledger. I think because you could not bring in the... Again, I had the hot take last time around of, oh, Aaron Eckhart gave the greatest performance in that movie. But, I mean, Heath, Heath Ledger, everybody knows that performance was absolutely outstanding. And I think with such an iconic character that he created, to not have him show up and not have him to throw additional wrenches into what Bane is already working on, I think that kind of killed the third movie. I think that definitely kind of shaves the two points off, if you will, <laughs> from the, ten, the critic scores. Well, about a year before the movie's actual release, Christopher Nolan mentioned he was considering using a mixture of CGI and deleted mm -hmm. scenes from The Dark Knight to have the Joker appear briefly yep. and just thought it'd be too disrespectful to Heath Ledger's memory. And I yep. probably agree, having seen what Disney did with Princess Leia. And, uh, oh God, who's the guy who played Graham Moff Tarkin? Peter Cushing. Because he oh. did not... It was, oh dude, that was so weird. He looks so strange. It was like uncanny valley like the like your brain is going something's really wrong here something's really wrong here because it i was like that's peter cushing but it's peter cushing's dead it was, it was very gross it was very gross well hollywood's got a long way to go before they don't need actors anymore my subtle plug for labor here on this program that's right dude i hope those folks with the writers guild and everybody do do just fine because it's Having having the executives of studios want to grab people's images and digitize them for $200 forever, like, get fucked. Seriously, I'm sorry. I think, like, that's corporate overlordism at its best, so, or worse, depending on how you look at it. I'm overwhelmingly pro-labor on this program and many programs, but uh, I, I won't say that I'm 100% on everything. It's just, I often don't feel myself being able to side with the greedy corporate capitalists. Well, Bob Iger is working on his next book, How to Completely Destroy My Reputation in a Series of a Few Months. <laughs> With forward by Kathleen Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw the article title on Puck News that was Iger Ego and the Super Ego. Ha, 
And I thought that was clever. That's very clever. That's very yeah. clever. Good deal. All right. Wrapping back around. What is this movie about? <laughs> um, well, let me give you a little bit to work with then. If, if we're, we're struggling a little bit, because I had some notes here from the man, the myth, the legend, Chris Nolan himself. He has said that this movie's themes deal with pain. For Batman Begins, it was fear, and The Dark Knight, it was chaos. And so each one has kind of a metaphorical sense hanging over it the whole time. Be interested to see how Nolan deals with eroticism. <laughs> it's called a James Bond film. That's the Harley Quinn movie. Oh, <laughs> that's the Nolan that's Harley bad. Quinn movie. I'll go buy tickets to that. <laughs> yeah, what what is this a film about? I think it's it's that phrase from becoming the before you either die the hero or you live to become the villain and in this one you know batman's disgraced batman's been gone for eight years because everybody thinks he's an absolute mook and i think there's a there's a redemption arc to it at the same time but i think there's also this is a much more i think it's a little bit more blunt of a movie than Either of the other two, the other two were a little bit more cerebral. And I think that this this one was a little bit more blunt. It's like, hey, this is Bane. Bad guy has bomb. Bad guy going to blow up the city. Mm, bad. Ultimately, even if a lie is done for positive or good reasons, it will ultimately fail and come back to haunt you. Oh, it's, it's like that line from the Chernobyl miniseries. What is the cost of lies? There's a price. There's a price you pay when you lie. Because it all eventually spins back around and chickens come home to roost. I like that. I like that, Dana. I actually took about three different things away from this movie. The early part of the movie, for me, is the price of apathy, as everything around them has kind of spun out of control. I mean, even Bane, to a degree, alludes to it. Victory has uh, made you weak or whatever it is. Yes. I, I can't victory, remember exactly. Victory has defeated you. Victory has defeated victory you. Has defeated victory you. has you. defeated you. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's an element of that. I think there's an element of obviously the rising above our adversities and our pain to accomplish things. But I think the last part of this, and this is kind of tying into the Michael Caine portion of it, the final scene where Michael Caine finally gets his fantasy it's moving on after we complete long-term goals. You know, I mean, so much of life is you set a goal and you wait to accomplish it. And I think a lot of people have realized accomplishing the goal isn't really where you find the joy. It's in the pursuit of the goal. But what do you do after it's now completed and it's not what you want? How do you move on to whatever's next? So are you saying it's the friends we made along the way, Tom? (laughs) That's a good way to wrap it in. It is, it is. I think Albert or uh, Alfred needs to establish new fantasies. What's wrong What's wrong with the Parisian cafe? It was a little lame. My fantasy is to see somebody else having coffee and having fun. That's my fantasy. Oh, okay. To be well, fair, let's you get into and that my later. mother have both said that you have a fantasy where I like actually get out of my own way and maybe meet somebody else. How is that any different? His is just in a more cool place, a Florian Cafe. <laughs> I think that's the right uh, pronunciation of like the conjugation of uh, Florence. Sure. Yes. Florian? Sure. All right. 
I thought it was we'll Paris, but whatever. But some place in Europe. It all blends together for you, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so we've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but is this movie really a fitting end after the highs of the Dark Knight? No. I think a lot of the complaints no, for no. most people is that it isn't. I would say that it doesn't give you the same high as the Dark Knight, and it probably never was going to. But for doing a third movie, and yes, maybe it's a cash grab, and I think it's possible that we would have gotten a better movie from a different director. But I understand them throwing a lot of money at him and Bale and everybody else to do another one, and it's probably better than you know, some of the other ending films we've gotten on certain trilogies. I can't be too upset with this one. It's not necessarily, I think it's the third best of the the trilogy, just personally. I think it's 2-1-3, but their batting average is a lot higher than yes. most other trilogies, if you will. Godfather 3? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think it falls into the Star Wars original trilogy thing of like, the second movie was so incredible that even the thir- if the third movie was just a banger, it still quite couldn't quite hold up. And I think that's what happens here is at least if you, I mean, like with Star Wars, if you take away the Ewoks, I think it's, I hate Ewoks. <laughs> but like, if you take away the, the Ewoks from, from Return of the Jedi, it's a pretty dang good movie. I don't know what you take away from the Dark, Dark Knight Rises, but like, it's the same thing. Empire was so good. The Dark Knight was so good. Their respective sequels had enormous shoes to fill and even if they were great movies they probably just couldn't do it because i mean we found out last week that right now dark knight is the greatest movie of all time how do you follow the goat yeah well i mean there's a reason that orson wells could never quite get to the same level again oh sure absolutely totally so i say this somewhat in jest but why the fuck can't christopher nolan make a movie with a good sound mixing I mean, oh, you mean it's either I'm not nearly as bad on whispers? this film as some other yes. ones, but it's clear that Bane had to be dubbed over because nobody could obviously hear him through the mask. The yes. worst movie or the worst example of this to me is Tenet. I couldn't understand a fucking word in the theater. And for a movie that's probably his most complicated, just let me hear the dialogue. Either that or give me fucking closed captioning in the theater, man. I hope we don't have that this weekend with Oppenheimer. I'm going to be pissed. I can't wait to see that. It looks really good because I like Killian Murphy. Any other general thoughts before we kind of move to the background of the film? No, but I got one that we should put in for like gripes or something like that later. <laughs> oh, okay. We can do nitpicks. I've, as you can tell, I have quite a few remaining questions yeah. for this one okay. compared yeah, to some do. of the yeah, other Yeah, you ones. do. So, okay. All right. Yeah, we'll have to jot that down. So, Dad, do you have some background for us on this movie? A plot summary ready for us? Yes. The Dark Knight Rises is the epic conclusion to Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy. Eight years have passed since the events of The Dark Knight, and Gotham City enjoys a period of relative peace thanks to the Dent Act, which put away numerous criminals. However, this tranquility is shattered with the arrival of a formidable new adversary, Bane, a physically imposing and cunning mercenary who emerges with a diabolic plan to bring Gotham City to its knees. As chaos engulfs the city, Bruce Wayne, who has retired as Batman and become a recluse, is forced to confront his past and rise from the shadows once again. 
Stripped of his resources and physically and emotionally shattered, Bruce Wayne finds himself in a dark, desolate prison. There he must find the strength to overcome his fears and pain and rise as the hero Gotham needs once again. In a heart-stopping climax, the Dark Knight faces his greatest challenge yet, leading to an unforgettable showdown between good and evil with the fate of Gotham City hanging in the balance. Batman must rise above adversity, confront his own limitations, and make the ultimate sacrifice to save the city he loves. Nicely done. Did you know? The Dark Knight Rises is something of an amalgamation of three Batman stories from the comics. The Dark Knight Returns sees Batman return after a ten-year absence. No Man's Land is about Gotham sitting being cut off from the rest of the world. And Nightfall is probably the quintessential Bane story arc from the comics. And much of his presentation in this movie is based on that. It's also a much more accurate comic representation of Bane compared to whatever the fuck was in Batman and Robin. Which, unfortunately, I have to talk about later this year. Did you know? What? About it. <laughs> Why? He lost the Academy Award bet. Oh, God. That's what I told him he had to do. So, oh, geez, he, he had to cover. Uh... I already watched it. Okay. I already have been putting together my notes slowly. I just have to actually record it. Cool party. <laughs> Figured there couldn't be anything worse for a true Batman film or than watching the worst one. Then don't have to watch the worst Batman. Oh my god. Ugh. Continue, please, Tom. I just have a feeling most fans are gonna have an icy reception for that one. Chill, Tom, chill. <laughs> oh, it's it's bad. Did you know? Tom Hardy, standing at five foot nine, had to wear three-inch lifts to make his character Bane appear as tall or taller than co-stars Christian Bale, Morgan Freeman, and Sir Michael Caine. Did you know? Tom Hardy was cast as Bane, and he did what he could to become physically imposing. The actor put on 30 pounds to bulk up to 200 pounds, and of course, Hardy put together his distinct voice he used for Bane as well. Part of his inspiration there was the bare-knuckle boxing legend Bartley Gorman. Did you know? Anne Hathaway really wanted the role of Selena Kyle, but she had some stiff competition. Several actresses auditioned for the role, including Hathaway, Jessica Biel, and Kate Mara, all had screen tests for the role before Hathaway won out. And with that, we will take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode... Next week, we again revisit one of our favorite films on the show, Casablanca from 1942, directed by Michael Curtiz, written by Julius J. Epstein, Philip J. Epstein, and Howard Koch. Music by Max Steiner, starring Humphrey Bogart, Claude Rains, Ingrid Bergman, Peter Lorre, and Sidney Greenstreet. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Gentlemen, best performance is up. Dad, who did you have down? Tom Hardy. I think he had the hardest uh, job to be consistently imposing, and yet, I, I, I don't know, he had to straddle somewhat. I mean, he couldn't just be a badass the entire film. He had to have certain elements of leadership and such. I just thought he did a very good job overall. Uh, especially considering that he had no ability to use his face. I was going to mention that too. He's my most charismatic 
And it kind of goes back to something Rob was saying last week on the Dark Knight episode that Eckhart had to use that kind of like half of his face he couldn't use. So it's a much deeper and tougher trick. Bane had no use of his mouth and pretty much most of his face other than like his eyes. So other than the ferocity of his eyes, most of what he was doing was just a physicality and how he presented his body. And yet I still think that there's a degree that he gets aided by the fact that he had to do dubbing afterwards, that all of his lines are like recorded over the top. So they're a little bit clearer. His voice acting work lends a certain extra character quality on top of this that I don't think he would have had had they gone with the original version of the character and just like put a strategic mic in the mask or something. It adds a certain like accent and caricature quality to it that is much more quotable and aids to that. And so that's why I went with him as charismatic because he, like Ledger in The Dark Knight, kind of becomes the I won't say breakout, but the specific character that everybody is taking out of this movie. Rob, your best performer. Oh, absolutely, Hardy. The only gripe I have about his actual performance is that he did it again in Peaky Blinders. Mm. He's he's in there and he's talking to to Killy Murphy and and the guys who are the three main characters of that. And he's this uh, uh, what is he? Some sort of Jewish merchant or something like that and they go talk to him he's like hello how are you and it's like oh my god it's bane so <laughs> i think like don't reuse the character dude but no i really think his performance was was uh was absolutely tremendous because again we talked about the mask being limiting the eyes i'm glad they gave him the lifts in his boots my head cannon bane is not the roided out like crazy batman and robin bane but he's huge like he's he's very it's the same problem i had with gaston in the live action beauty and the beast like luke evans was a perfect gaston he had the face he had the the physique as far as like fitness and things like that but he's 5'10 like that's not gaston gaston 6'4 and he's beautiful and bane is you know 6'6 and you know monstrously strong and not you know again not weirdly strong but like i think if i have any issues with hardy's performance they're all things that he can't really control. So I think they did a good job of trying to at least mitigate those. And I think, again, his quotability, everyone wants to talk like this now, and they have been doing so for 10 years. I agree with you, but I think for Nolan's trilogy that was so grounded and practical yes. and realistic, to have the comic, like the true comic version of Bane, a lot of that is very campy and stuff that's, much more, for lack of a better term, over the top than you were probably willing to go in this. So this is probably the best version of a more realistic part of the character that instead of the mask aiding to his ferocity and his power, it's actually masking his pain. Yes. Yeah, I, I guess if if Tom Hardy was the build of Henry Cavill, I would not have had a problem with it at all. I still think he's a very ferocious and powerful character oh, in this. yes. I, I think so too. He's like a, a badger. Badgers are not big creatures, but I wouldn't mess with one, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Unless you're a Buckeye, apparently. Uh, obligatory fuck Ohio State. Sorry. We're from Wisconsin. The Ohio State? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to. They all do that shit too. It, I know they it, do. It bugs the crap out of me. Drives, drives, 
Ohio listeners, just so you know, if you did go to the Ohio State University, that drives other people, normal people, nuts. We all hate you because of it. Which is only giving them more incentive to do that. Yeah, they they want to do that. No, just know, know that we right know that we hate you for that. Like <laughs> they they thrive on our hatred. <sighs> yeah. When I rule the universe, I'm gonna go out on a limb with my best performer. Please do. I'm going Anne Hathaway. Oh, delightful! Yeah, I can get on board with that too. I can. I, can I thought she had the actually. You know, if it's not like something superhuman and it's not dubbed, it's not physical. I mean, she's got a lot of those elements, but she's a very wily, obviously a very strong and physically not necessarily imposing, but can handle her own heroine. But she's also got a lot of the best philosophical lines of the movie. And she kind of straddles the middle between where Bane's at and where Batman's at. She's kind of that middle ground that's neither criminal nor saint. She's kind of, in a way, acting the way that the soul of the film needs to go because Alfred has fled the coop. <laughs> and so I think, you know, I thought this is right around the time where I believe she won her Best Actress Award uh, for a very small movie role. But... Even so, I thought this was about where the peak of Anne Hathaway's career was. And I thought she was excellent in this movie. A great addition for cat women everywhere. A lot better than Halle Berry. Yeah. Well, I think, Tom, you, you step on a lot of really good points there with that of, like, number one, this this Selena Kyle is smart. She is beautiful, but that is not her primary character. She's smart. She's talented. She's cunning. She happens to be beautiful. And she's she's able to go toe to toe with the rest of the superheroes without being without being a superhero necessarily. And she's not dumb. And it's she's a well written female character. And I think sometimes that becomes really rare these days. I will liken it to how I compared Alfred or the modern version of Alfred two weeks ago when we did the show. That I really like that the comics version has left behind the Adam West version of Alfred where he's just kind of standing in the corner and he holds the bat phone and he's really never a part of things. Now he's got a more specific role in that specific discussion. Dad mentioned that he's kind of the soul of Batman Begins and for a, a while the Dark Knight as well. And so he has a specific role. But I think also as we keep going past the Dark Knight trilogy, Alfred takes on a much different role as well as the kind of trainer-in-chief, because he was special forces in some of the comics of Batman, and so it's an even bigger father figure that's outsized. Catwoman, at one time, was simply just a jewel thief. She was a very hollow-written character. She was there to basically be the male fantasy of a villain and, you know, whatever else was there. But as we've kind of push the character farther along. If I'll give any credit to Batman Returns in the Tim Burton films, I thought that that version with Michelle Pfeiffer kind of pushed the boundary of a character development of that particular villain in a way that was groundbreaking at the time. And ever since then, even through the new continuity of the new 52 and such, where she becomes kind of in the Batman universe, what Lois Lane is in the Superman universe. She is always the love interest, but she's always kind of push-pull with Batman. I think is much more interesting than what we originally had for that character, and this is another manifestation of that. 
Right. And I think the other thing too, is that the, the character of Catwoman has evolved over the past, what, 50 years from, Hey guys, look at this. She's really pretty to, Oh, this is a reimagining of a character in the Burton films where she is, she is attractive, but she's also like, really like, don't like, don't mess with her because she'll really fuck you up. And then this is another evolution of it where again, she is a jewel thief, but she is, she's much more well-rounded in that. Again, the attractiveness of Catwoman is a like tertiary or quaternary characteristic. Oh, there's your, there's your college word for the quaternary. <laughs> Without like completely blowing my comments later on in the show, this is Nolan's attempt to provide estrogen balance for the, a testosterone-driven first two films. The two characters that ultimately have the greatest impact in this film are Catwoman and Talia, because the first time I saw it never dawned on me as a man uh, that the uh, the villain, the person that was ultimately the the person to run the whole operation would have been a female. And so this is Nolan saying, hey, women can be just as badass and evil as the guys. Yeah, more badass in some cases. Talia al Ghul, yeah, man. I know he surprised even me with that because first time I saw it, I didn't think of it at all. And I knew exactly who Talia al Ghul is in the character or in the comics. Best secondary for me, I went kind of the vanilla route, and I went with Christian Bale. I mean, he's great in all of these, so I don't think it's like a bad pick, but I don't have anything particularly enthusiastic to say about him. I just, he's my Batman, at least for right now. Unless there's somebody that's really going to top it, which might be difficult. Again, I've said it repeatedly through these three episodes we've now done. He's the best actor that I've seen to play Batman. I agree. And I think Robert Pattinson did a good job, but like, yeah, the, but I just think the, Christian the Bale, as far is, as Bale. actor yeah. level, if if you're yeah. just going like for like, like our Pat's a very good actor, but Bale is for me in like a, a subcategory of like Daniel Day Lewis types. He can act the phone book if he really wanted to. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. My secondary, I, I got to go. Uh, you know, I think I hate to copy you here, but Tom, but like, I do think that Catwoman performance, again, a very good character, like just, just really like you, you like her almost immediately, like even no, no suit or any, or cat ear goggles, which I thought was really cute. Actually, I thought it was kind of funny how they played that, uh, that particular aspect of her putting her, her like not night vision, but her goggles up and they kind of make little ears, which is kind of adorable. But yeah, I just think, I think she did a fantastic job too, because again, likable villainous and not for the reasons that you would expect. It's because she's smart and like, let's get more of that. So that's where I'm at. And I really enjoyed when we got the Batman this last year, the version we got in that movie as well. So, I mean, it it's an expansive version of whatever that character is. And if we keep just kind of modernizing or reinventing certain characters that have outlived their usefulness, like I'd love to see some of the B-level villains that are a little bit more classic be brought out for some of these films instead of just trotting out the same ones. I'm fine with the Riddler because Jim Carrey was a terrible Riddler. 
But we've done Two-Face enough. We've done the Penguin enough. We've done the Joker enough. I know everybody, every time there's a Batman movie, everybody's always looking for it. But let's bring, like, Clayface into the modern I was just going to say, world. you want to see Clayface, don't you? Okay. I can get up with that. Or, like, I guess it's technically Doctor Strange as well. But there's Hugo Strange. Like, a version of that character would be interesting in a modern film as well. Maybe see Mr. Freeze again in a non-ultra campy role. But he's kind of an anti-hero. He's not true, exactly true. a villain. He's not a villain, you're right. Especially if you go like to the uh, Sub-Zero animated version movie. I think that was a pretty good version of what that character should be. All that dude's trying to do is get his wife back. That's all he's trying to do, and I, I, I don't fault him. I kind of identify with Mr. Freeze a lot. Like, wouldn't you do everything you could if you thought you could save your wife's life? Hell yeah, man, sure would. You know? Well, and that's why I think he would be a better sub-character instead of the primary character. Like, he gets caught up in somebody else's web of whatever's going on. And he helps Batman in the end save something and, like, save the day at the price of whatever he wants for himself. He, he kind of rescues himself, in a way. I think that would be the best version of that. Yeah, he starts as an antagonist, not the villain, necessarily. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, cool. Dad, best secondary. Christian Bale. Actually, I thought he had to do more act, actual acting in this film than in the other two because he had to go from high to low to high and then almost back to low before he ultimately prevails. And so I thought he had to convey a lot more emotional range than in the first two films. So that's why I went with him. But as far as charismatic, it's Anne Hathaway best Batgirl I've seen other than the original from TV, Julie Newmar. Yeah, but there were three original Catwomen on that show. I know. There was Eartha Kitt I... and there was one other one. And that I oh, can't that's think a name of. I haven't heard in forever. Holy shit. Meriwether? Mary, um, yes, um, just a second. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Mary, Meriwether. Um, she was the secretary on Barnaby Jones. She was a former Miss USA. Lee Merriweather. Lee Merriweather, yes. Another name I haven't heard in half forever. Wow. Yeah, well, you know. The only reason I could pull some of that out is, one, I have Google in front of me, and two, there's an episode of Big Bang Theory where Sheldon counts Catwomen. Ah, so have there been nine? I don't remember. Michelle Pfeiffer, the three on that particular program, I don't remember there being one in the serials, but I haven't watched all of them. And then you have... Halle Berry, Anne Hathaway, and now I'm forgetting the actress's name Oh, that was in uh, this last iteration with the Batman. Wasn't there one in, like, Batman and Robin? No. Zoe no. Kravitz. I think that would be the epitome, as if there were nine of them. The nine lives of Catwoman. Then we'd have to stop? Yes. Right, and then Catwoman can never appear again, yes. <laughs> well, right now my count is at uh, seven. So we need two more. Rob, charismatic for you. Oh, it's totally Tom Hardy. The man commands the room again. With despite the complaints that I have with him, some of the the moments he just when he uh, sets his hand on was it Burn Gorman is the actor, kind of weird looking dude, and you know, do you feel in charge? <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Oh I, no, that's Ben Mendelsohn. Oh, it's uh, Ben. It's Ben Mendelsohn, but Burn Gorman's in that room. Sorry. Right. You're um, correct. Sorry about that. Yes, it's it's Ben Mendelsohn's shoulder because Burn Gorman gets the hell out. Sorry, but you know that. Do you feel in charge? And just that that 
he sucks the life out of that dude without even with just leaning the back of his hand on his shoulder. That is some very dark charisma, which is super cool. And I just I think that's one of the things where Tom Hardy captured the essence of who and what Bane is very much so in that one line, but also pumped a lot of that through the rest of his performance as as Bane. Well, we often on this show have talked about dialogue and delivery and all of the other things that you normally think about with acting, but we very rarely go into the physicality of a character. This is one where I think the physicality has to really be the most important part of who that character is. Because even to the the strengths of what that character is in the comics, where he is an intellectual equal of Batman. And I think to a degree he is in this movie, because I think he has even better set up plans in a way than the Joker does, because he's doing this all under the nose of everybody and has a really tight master plan. In a way, the physicality, though, becomes the primary part of his character. It's the thing you know about him the most is him beating Batman to a pulp and being able to punch a stone pillar and break it. You're putting too much on the physicality aspect. There was so much about Bane and Tom Hardy's presentation as to the intellectual aspect, the trickery that was involved, and then his ability to make you realize he has put you in a compromising position. You're in a bad position because, yeah. Yeah. There's much more to the physical than the physicality to that. But the way he presents himself is with such full confidence at all times. Do you really feel in charge? Is only delivered well when he feels like he's peering down at the other guy. Now, of course, that was recorded on some steps in order to get that appearance. But even so, it's that menacing ability. Yes, it's somewhat in the voice acting, but it's exuding a certain level of confidence that I feel like you and I can never have because we're not tall or menacing individuals. Although, to be fair, there are a lot of people that fear you, and you don't understand why. No, I understand why. And actually, I was going to comment, there have been multiple times when I have, just by sheer questioning and disclosure, taken absolute control of a situation and made someone feel completely vulnerable and, and lost. I can think of one particular moment where I built a crescendo on a deposition and then later out and to the point where she really just was like skewered. Sarah, where are the bite marks in this sandwich? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I have that ability and I, 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 Sometimes we'll use it without thinking about it. Other times it's planned. I have one particular case, and to this day, the person that I did it to despises me with uh, with a, a level of bile that I think is like all consuming. She just like has to save up opportunities to hate me more. Wow, living rent free in her head, bro. <laughs> if it's who I'm thinking about, I don't think that. Uh... She has much room for that uh, next to all the um, floating alcohol in her body. Right? Or the beer cans piled up in the corner, yes. And that was the, uh, that was the, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. Okay. And uh, it's one of those moments as a lawyer where 
you build and you go and you do things for almost an hour and then all of a sudden you just turn on a dime and completely turn everything that's been going on for the previous 50 minutes into a position where they're just filleted and laid open and bare and everything about them, including their soul, is now exposed and they feel completely lost and vulnerable. It's the aha moment in the courtroom dramas. You've activated my trap card, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's one of those moments where you actually feel powerful. It's one of the few times where I've gone, yeah, yeah, I just did that. And I'm I'm glad I do it in a situation where it was for the benefit of children. See, that's cool. I like that. That's awesome. To be fair, in any one particular scenario, especially such as this, that particular individual made it rather easy for you. It was kind of like playing tennis with the net down. Yeah, but it would have been so easy for just anybody to have botched that. That's good. That's good. You know, I mean, even if the net was down, the problem comes in that... She was still unable to return serve? Or you can still put it out over the line. And in this particular case, I just made sure everything fit within the court and every serve came back and I responded and put her, I mean, I had her. There have been other times that this has happened. I call it, there are times as a lawyer where you feel like you're playing a Stradivarius and everything just works perfectly. And when you do, you feel, I don't know, it's hard to. It's hard to say, but it's the few times that I've actually felt like I was 10 feet tall. What's the opposite of a New York Jet? <laughs> a Super Green Bowl Bay champion. Packer. A Super Bowl champion. <laughs> a Green Bay Packer. All right. Best scene. I have in-air kidnapping, Batman Returns, Batman versus Bane number one, the opening kickoff, escaping the pit, kangaroo court, on thin ice, Batman vs. Bane number two, Talia Al Ghul, Final Flight of the Bat, and Epilogue as my nominees. What do you gentlemen have, if any, as additional scenes you would like to mention? I have none. I went through your list. I think you covered pretty much everything there. I would I would kind of disagree that I, I don't think the kangaroo court scene is that good. So that's one I, I would remove because I, th- I think it it shoehorns that that Spencer Crane character back into the movie. It feels like, oh, oh, and he just happens to be the judge. Oh, goodness. But yeah, I think you you catch a lot of a lot of the the really quite good ones there, um, with the exception, I think, of Kangaroo Court. Yeah. In all comic accuracy, I do have to unfortunately make a quick fact correction. Jonathan Crane. Oh, I'm I mixed him up with Spencer. What's his name from Criminal Minds? <laughs> Sorry. All good. John, I just Dr. Crane. For, for any of the comic book fans yeah, listening, sorry, comic book I, I do hear those things and do check them in in real time if I have to. Yeah, so I no, apologize, totally. Rob, that no. I had to do that, but oh, just good. for the the nerds listening out there, so we don't get hate mail. Dude, send hate mail my way. I like hate mail. It means I'm living rent free in your head, man. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Did anybody catch the fact that the? The scenes and the trial and the kangaroo court were reminiscent of the French Revolution. And very much so. What's read by Gordon at Bruce Wayne's funeral, but the final lines from A Tale of Two Cities. 
In fact, that was going to come up in quotes for me. That was some of the basis for what Nolan did with the film. So, yeah, I, I certainly got that because you pointed it out during the, the film. Yeah, but. that's one of my favorite books. So, All right. As far as best scene, I mean, you could pretty much nominate anything from about the last half an hour of the film, and I think I'd be fine. The last half an hour is just absolute banger after banger after banger of just great, thrilling scenes. I wish the rest of the lead-up to the the other parts of the movie was as good. I mean, we get a lot of crescendos with The Dark Knight where it's got several meaty parts in the beginning, the middle, and the end, but this ending still was pretty good. I think the, the epilogue feels a little tacked on, but most epilogues do, so that's, you know, neither here nor there. But for me, I'll go Batman versus Bane number two, because you get that moment where he kind of, he gets his suit back on, he comes out with the bat, and then you see him come and fight Bane. I think that's probably one of the climaxes in the movie for me. Yeah, it's, it's a great climax, that's for sure. I just, I hate when I watch that scene in too high of definition, because you can see some of the actors in the background pulling their punches, like really poorly. It's like, and this is when I wish I didn't have Ultra HD TV and things like that. It's kind of funny. But in a, in a vacuum, if you overlook that, yes, it's great. You see a little bit of that rage from from Batman of like, you know, kind of the, the fuck you dude kind of thing. And I just, I think you got a really solid nominee there, man. For me, it was the uh, Talia El Ghul scene because it came out of left field. I mean, it was just so surprising when I saw it, in fact, I had almost I had kind of forgotten about it, and then it was like it happened again, and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, it's kind of the the old joke of guy and is uh, comes in for surgery, and his father is killed, and the surgeon looks and says, I can't operate on him; he's my son. How can that be? And everyone, oh, 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 the surgeon's a woman. And that's the kind of situation no one thought that the the antagonist in this film was ultimately female and the good-looking female to boot. Well, an episode that you won't be a part of, but the only other time where the audience expectations and kind of their own racism played against them for a really rather satisfying twist, in my opinion, was Spider-Man Homecoming because the girl that he's trying to date, she's black, and her mother is black, but you don't put two and two together that there's a possibility the villain, Michael Keaton, could be her dad. And so when he goes to show up for prom and opens the door, and it's the villain staring at him, and it's the dad of his prom date, it was a really <laughs> great spoiler, but yeah. That, that one was good for me. She just happened to get the darker skin genetics in that case, as far or you know, it wasn't a mix, it was one, leaning one way, and it's, oh gosh, that's funny. I haven't seen that. I thought it was a rather good movie. Yeah, sure. Uh, let's hear. Did we get everybody's uh, best uh, scene? No. I, I, best scene for me, it is a resounding in-air kidnapping. It's. I think that's almost as good. Actually, I think it's better than the bank scene Ooh. in Dark Knight from a special effects standpoint. Well, sure. The degree of difficulty The degree is of difficulty. Like, yes, okay, those guys ziplined. And yes, there was some, you know, some uh, gunplay and things like that. But like from a like holy crap, this is actually happening on the screen thing. Let me rephrase that. It was a bigger jaw dropper than until at least you got to the 
stranger part in this case. It was a bigger jaw dropper of, oh my God, they're picking up that plane with a C-130. Like, that's unbelievable. That's And just the introduction to Bane and the fact that Aiden Gillen plays a dude in the CIA and he's Littlefinger in Game of Thrones. It's like, oh my God, you're typecast. <laughs> so I, it's, I think it's just an enjoyable scene all around. Favorite scene for me, I'm going to go on thin ice. It's the true moment when Batman shows up and he's really actualized again. You light up the thing because it you're you have all that tension building to that moment because you have like three or four things going on at the same time where characters are potentially in danger or having a difficult moment and he appears and everything seems to like alleviate the tension. Be okay. And so yeah. all of a sudden, yes, Batman's back. Fuck yeah, let's go. Anytime I could get a chest-pumping Batman scene, I'm there for it. Favorite scene, Dad? The uh, stock exchange where Wayne loses everything. Simply because it brings him to its most raw point, which is Batman is all about having the wealth and the power through his corporate entity to create and become Batman. Now it's all gone. He has to find a way to utilize his own resources, his own skills, his own natural abilities to rise above the fact that he has no money. Rob? Favorite scene? Oh. As a guy with back, with a back injury, escaping the pit. Escaping the pit because I have been there. I have been that guy who has, so I actually, so my back went out when I was 31, so about five, six years ago, was an injury from repetitive motion splitting wood. I'm still pissed at my father-in-law for it. Don't tell my wife. Um, <laughs> but, so I had this repetitive motion injury. I will cut injury. that part strategically for no, you. No, you don't have to. You don't but have no, to. But no, er, yes, I can understand uh, father-in-laws. Right. Thank you, Dana. But repetitive motion injury, and I asked my doctor at the time i said you know i am really having a hard time like if it was 1850 what would happen to me and he said you would spend six months in bed or you would never walk again and i'm like i'm sorry what so like seeing bruce wayne having broken his back which by the way i was so glad that they did that that acknowledgement to bane actually breaking his back from the comics but seeing that recovery path for somebody again not everybody has a back injury or anything like that but like for me that was like okay like you can get back on the horse with this stuff. And, and while you have to watch out what you're, what you're doing again, he's got the knee thing too, and everything like that, where the, you know, the knee brace that digs into his thigh or whatever the heck it is, you know, knowing that you can, if you've got the right setup, you can still be the hero you are needed to be. So uh, that one always is great for me. Most indelible moment. I remember two things distinctly and how I felt surprised in the theater. One was the Talia al Ghul moment. The other, the autopilot moment. And so that's where I'm oh, going to go yeah. here. The autopilot reveal at the end of the movie that he's actually okay. Because I'm like, they really killed Batman? Really? They killed James Bond. Yeah, but that's... They killed Daniel Craig. Because Daniel Craig wanted to be killed off. Not because they killed James Bond. Yeah. I know. I'm still beaten up about that one. Oh, well. <laughs> I don't know. Either way, that that the last flight of the bat. So everything from about the him revealing who he was to Gordon 
all the way up through the explosion and then the reveal of the autopilot. That, to me, is all an indelible moment. See, I think I want to take that down a step. I want to take that down a step because one of my favorite lines, and I yes, we're, you're going to get to favorite lines at some point in time, but that little scene where Bruce Wayne tells Jim Gordon about how much empathy meant to him when it seemed like his world had collapsed like that one, that's one that stuck with me. Yeah. Of like, you know what, when you go out to the world, you go be good to people. Like seriously, like you go. And if you see somebody who's having a bad day, you, you do that little gesture for them because you don't know how much that means to them long-term. And that, that's one of my favorite parts of that movie. And it really is an indelible moment because there's number one, the realization that, Oh my God, Bruce Wayne, like what? And the fact that it's been a thing for, for Jim Gordon for what, 25 years, you know, something like that, you know, Bruce is what eight or nine when his parents are killed and he's in his mid to late thirties when it comes to that, that scene. I, I think that's just an incredibly indelible moment to tell us to be better, better humans to each other. Oh, I know. I teared like streaming down my face at that moment in the theaters. I remember that very clearly. It, it's one of the f- lines that stuck out to me the most. Mm-hmm. Most indelible for me. Every time I think of this film, I think of the kickoff. It's because of Heinz Ward. He was a favorite receiver <laughs> of yours, wasn't he? I mean, think about that guy in that universe. Hey, you outran an earthquake. Like, yeah, 100,000 people died there or whatever. Like, but you outran an earthquake. You're the one man. All your teammates died. How do you feel? You know, like, that's that's a crazy moment. And for as many times as I've seen this movie... I completely missed multiple times how he murders the mayor in his luxury box and then finally saw it this time. And I'm like, oh, I guess I never picked up on that. But I still don't know how they did the practical effect for all of that. I mean, because I, I, I saw the set design of how they did it in Heinz Field, and it still is just it's remarkable. The, the stunt work on, on Nolan movies are always ridiculous. Can't wait to see how he uh, apparently does a nuclear bomb without uh, apparently creating some type of international um, incident. <laughs> yeah. Unless he's like uh, getting some extra stuff from Kim Jong-un. I-, I-, I still don't know. That's how those guys are staying afloat. Got it. All right. Let's take our second break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode... And before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our master greatest movies of all time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That is the grades we've done so far for all 162 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Nick Benedict, 77, American actor, was in All My Children, The Young and the Restless, and Days of Our Lives. Daniel Goldberg, 74, Canadian film producer, was uh, one of the producers of The Hangover, Stripes, Space Jam, and Old School. And a screenwriter co-wrote Meatballs and Stripes. That's a lot of comedy right there. That's, That's... That's a powerhouse lineup. Yeah, no kidding. And John Nettleton, 94, English actor, Yes Minister, Black Beauty, 
A Man for All Seasons, and Oliver Twist. And so we recognize these here for their contributions to the arts and the entertainment we love so much with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. And now, as we do every week, we desecrate their memory by best funniest lines. Batman. A hero can be anyone, even a man doing something as simple and reassuring as putting a coat around a young boy's shoulders to let him know the world hadn't ended. Selena Kyle. Never steal anything from someone you can't outrun, kid. Bane. Speaking to Batman, we mentioned this one earlier. Peace has cost you your strength. Victory has defeated you. Bane. There's a reason why this prison is the worst hell on earth. Hope. Every man who has ventured here over the centuries has looked up to the light and imagined climbing to freedom. So easy, so simple, and like shipwrecked men turning to seawater from uncontrollable thirst, many have died trying. I learned here that there can be no true despair without hope. So as I terrorize Gotham, I will feed its people hope to poison their souls. I will let them believe they can survive so that you can watch them clamoring over each other to stay in the sun. You can watch me torture an entire city, and when you have truly understood the depth of your failure, we will fulfill Ra's al Ghul's destiny. We will destroy Gotham, and then, when it is done and Gotham is ashes, then you have my permission to die. Ben, I broke you. How have you come back? <laughs> That's kind of a funny line. Uh, on the other end of that, uh, the the shadows betray you because they belong to me. I will show you where I've made my home while preparing to bring justice. Then I will break you. Then, of course, he blows the hole in the, in the ceilings of World, uh, Wayne Enterprises, or the basement of Wayne Enterprises. Uh, your precious armory, gratefully accepted. We will need it. And then, of course, Batman tries to desperately grab it and take to, take Bane down and Ah, yes, I was wondering what would break first. Your spirit or your body? And, of course, breaks his spine. But you missed my favorite line, which is, like, right before that. Oh, you think darkness is yes, your Yes, I didn't want to leave that one But there, you yeah. merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was already a man. By then, I was nothing to me but blinding. John Blake, you get to learn to hide the anger, practice smiling in a mirror. It's like wearing a mask. I have a feeling that was my dad's mantra. The one that I think is is a interesting one is the one the crowd in the prison's chanting that dasha 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 or whatever it is. Uh, and you know Bruce Wayne asks, you know, what does that mean? And the, the prison doctor goes, "Rise." So I thought it was an interesting little quote. Jim Gordon, I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss. I see the lives for which I laid down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts, and in the hearts of their descents, generations hence. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Catwoman. My mother warned me about getting into cars with strange men. Batman. This isn't a car. <laughs> Alfred. I never wanted you to come back to Gotham. I always knew there was nothing here for you except pain and tragedy, and I wanted something more for you than that. I still do. Bane. Speak of the devil and he shall appear. <laughs> Selina Kyle. There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. 
You and your friends better batten down the hatches, because when it hits, you're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. Miranda Tate, feel the fire of 12 million souls you have failed. Bane, we take Gotham from the corrupt, the rich, the oppressors of generations who have kept you down with myths of opportunity. We give it back to you, the people. Gotham is yours. None shall interfere. Do as you please. Start by storming Blackgate and freeing the oppressed. Step forward those who would serve, for an army will be raised. The powerful will be ripped from their decadent nests and cast out into the cold world that we know and endure. Courts will be convened, spoils will be enjoyed, blood will be shed. The police will survive as they learn to serve true justice. This great city, it will endure. Gotham will survive. I had too much fun with that one. <laughs> Bane. No one cared who I was until I put on the mask. I'm out. Oh, I'm at, I've got my last one. Daggett to Bane. What the hell is going on? Bane, our plan is proceeding as expected. John Daggett. Oh, really? Do I look like I'm running Wayne Enterprise right now? You're hit on the stock exchange. It didn't work, my friend. And now you have my construction crews going around the city 24 hours a day. How exactly is that supposed to help my company absorb Wayne's? And then, of course, Bane speaks to Striver in there. Leave us? John Daggett, no, you stay here. I'm in charge. And in my favorite line of the movie, Bane putting his hand upon Daggett's shoulder. Do you feel in charge? I got three more. Talia al Ghul. You see, it's the slow knife. The knife that takes its time. The knife that waits years without forgetting, then slips quietly between the bones. That's the knife that cuts deepest. Traitor number one. This is a stock exchange. There's no money you can steal. Really? Then why are you people here? Yes. Oh, I, I want to go into the NYSC and ask that shit someday. <laughs> and, of course, the famous Bane. I am Gotham's Reckoning. All right. I'm out. Let's move to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Dad, I will give you the floor. All right, well, I'll take the floor, the wall, and the ceiling in this one. Uh, Legacy, I think it has had some legs within the industry simply because it again showed that even mediocre superhero films can make a billion dollars. So I went with If that's four. not foreshadowing <laughs> as to how you think about this film. <laughs> So you're saying like charisma, negativity can also be a part of legacy and promote it positively? Yeah, because because it's it's not necessarily the quality, but the content or the circumstances. I, it went with a four for the industry. For the public, I think this is the forgotten of the three. And so I went with a 3.5, but I think that public legacy is diminishing as each year goes by. So another three or four years, I would go with a three, and eventually it's going to get down there because uh, as good as the f second one was and as almost as good as the first one was, this pales. There's a lot of plot holes in this. As you kept uh, stopping the film and yelling at me about, how can that happen? And I'm going, it's a superhero film. You don't need to have all the plot perfect 
you did a weird accent while you were playing yourself. Yeah, I know. Are you trying to do like Just some weird Burgess Meredith thing? <laughs> okay. So what's your overall score then? 7.5. Uh, Rob, I'll let you go. Yeah, I'm going to go with, uh, for industry, I'm going to go for a four. I'm going to agree with Dana with a four. Again, there was some, there was a lot of good technical stuff in this. You know, you had things like the the bat CGI, the, you know, the nuclear weapons CGI, the the practical effect of the planes at the beginning. There, there was a lot that I think industry-wise was very good from this movie. But I'm going to also jump on the Dana bandwagon here. I think the public legacy for this is really down there. I think it's about a two and a half for a total of 6.5 here because he's right. This is the forgotten one of the trilogy. This is the, if the movies had been released in a different order, this is totally a middle child movie. This is totally a, not a safe play. And again, they, they tried real hard. They tried real hard to make this a great movie. And I, I still think this is a good movie, but I just don't think because it, it lives in the shadow of its, its young, its older sibling. And I think that's really hard for it to break out of it from the public angle. So two and a half and four. So six, six and a half total. So I'm going to go somewhat opposite than both of you. Ooh. I, of course uh, you would. Yes. So I actually have a three on the industry. I think Ooh. it's a billion dollar film, but comparative to The Dark Knight, I think the industry is more forgotten this film than the public has. Okay. In fact, I would go to say that because The Dark Knight had such an outsized impact, that more people saw this film, even though it was mediocre, because of how great that one was, and hoping that they could catch lightning in a bottle twice. It was unfortunate because then it placed such undue expectations for somebody to somehow recreate the will again. And that's why I said earlier on in the pod, I wonder if another director couldn't have made a better movie, because I just don't think Nolan was nearly as inspired for this one. If you brought in somebody that really could have told a story, taken up what he had left off and done something with it and been really creative. You know, it's a possibility. Joel Schumacher? <laughs> no, no, Chris Columbus. Get Chris Columbus's ass in here. You might as well at that point just hand it over to John Woo and get it over with. You know what? Bring him on too. Michael, uh, Michael, Michael Bay. No, no, do not, do not destroy Batman with Michael Bay. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. yeah, Michael Bay. Bomb Man, not Batman. It would be the only Batman movie I would never see. I <laughs> no, will not watch Michael no, Bay. It would, no, it wouldn't. You'd go, you would be first in line at the theater, bro. Nope. Uh, I have sworn off Michael Bay. It is that at that dang. point I would I would seriously consider switching teams from DC to Marvel. Yes, Michael Bay does it, and Batman converts to a garbage truck. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a three for the industry on this one. <laughs> I have a 3.5 for the audience. Okay. I, buy I that, think yeah. this is an impactful movie or one that people remember because they remember being disappointed. Wow. Okay. That. Wow. There it is. We're on the, we're on opposite sides, but we're really on the same team. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Impact significance. I think it goes under a similar light, the industry. I thought this was a fart in the wind for them. I went with a 3.5 because, okay, it's another Batman film, and we gave such plaudits to The Dark Knight that we changed the industry as far as awards and 
you know, actually gave some credence to something. And then you kind of come in and give us nothing that you did in The Dark Knight. And it's a pretty decent comic book film, but it's a comic book film. So, okay, we'll, we'll give that to you. We'll be relatively positive. I mean, I'm a little bit surprised that the reviews are as high as it is for as much as the public rips on this film. I think the critic reviews actually give this a, a bump up a bit. But I can only get to about, oh gosh, a 3.5. In the moment, the audience for this one, everybody went and saw it because everybody went and saw The Dark Knight. It was huge. It's why something as tragic as what happened at a particular midnight showing could happen because everybody knew everybody was going to be at this movie. Everybody that went to the midnight showings in 2008 was lined up to go to the midnight showings in 2012. Myself being one of them, like I did not have to do much convincing to get people to go see a Batman movie. When comic book movies weren't yet, like, cool. Right. It'd be another five years before they were cool. This was truly when, one of the last vestiges of the monoculture, where we had something everybody seemed to love and treasure and be excited about coming out. And that's why I'm excited for this coming weekend with Barbenheimer, because it feels like one of the few times that everybody collectively wants to watch the same things. So I'll be curious to see how that happens, even though the numbers aren't like outstanding or fantastic yet. But the amount of people that are on social media saying, I booked my ticket for my double feature. Every one of my friends is doing it. Oh, yeah. We're doing it. That's We're cool. making a special funny. trip to Madison to go see it in as big a screen as we can. So this in is HD. it feels similar of a moment to that. It's not to the level of like Endgame or something to that quantitation but it is similar and so i think it it has to have a certain level of gravitas i went with a 4.5 on that one for an eight uh, side note on barbenheimer i do love when you have those two very opposite genres that pair up we saw it with the video game industry with doom and animal crossing like i love those juxtapositions of like you know what? We have this hyper-realistic, ultra-violent video game, and this is one where you pet, you know, where you were on an island building your like Farmville-style house. And I just, I think, I love that juxtaposition. I think it's great. So I am all for Barbenheimer. But uh, to get into kind of the the impact significance, I I got to go a little a little lower than you, Tom. I think I got to go about a really a seven on this. Again, split directly down the middle for industry and the public again we you like you said people were disappointed like it wasn't like i said earlier it's a good movie and had had it not had the dark knight not been the absolute smashingly good thing that it was i think we would be rating this a point or two higher all of us because it is a good movie perhaps even a great movie if it didn't live in its sibling shadow so I think that we should be careful as to how we're we're doing that, but I think the world we live in, it's a seven. Well, and as we led off the program with, I think on its worst day, this is still better than probably half the Marvel films that have come out. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. Well, especially with the gar garbage that's been shoveled in the past couple of years. I mean. Well, yeah. Or as Adam and I have been previewing a lot of the stuff in phase one. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I digress. Dad. Industry. Three. We just, I mean, it had no awards, no real recognition. None of the critics really 
gave it any big kudos. And while the, I would give it because it still made a million, or a, excuse me, a billion dollars, I would normally give that a five. But I think there was a lot of backlash about people who just didn't like it that much or were disappointed. So I'm going to give it a point down for that for a four. So I'm going to go with a seven overall. Okay, so you match Rob's score. Mm-hmm. And let's see here. So for the first category. For the first category, we had a 6.83 average between the three of us. That's low. For the second category, (laughs) we have a 7.33 between the three of us. Which I think is decent. It's not going to be great, but that's kind of what this movie deserves. Yep. Novelty. I'm going to liken this to the original trilogy. The first movie is fresh, feels new. It's kind of out of the box. The second one raises the bar so high that the third one could never possibly meet it. And then the third one is good, but it feels like a retread. So I kind of ultimately, even with the execution being high class on this one, went with a five. Ooh, wow. Uh, I think that's a little, I have the same reasoning behind it on this. And I I hate to, I hate to take it. All right. So bring me up. I'm willing to come I, up. I think it's I think it's a six. I think it's a six because it's it is executed well enough that it is like, oh, like again, the technical work, the stunt work, things like that, aside from the the that one set of uh goons and police police officers that I see every time who cannot who like didn't listen in their like how to throw and take a punch class. Holy shit, you guys. Like <laughs> those those there's one set of them, and it's like I play fought in my backyard like that. <laughs> As a child, but um, yeah, I, I think it, I think you I think you may be a little bit too harsh on it, bringing it up just a little bit again because of the technical achievements of the actual. You know, again, it's hard to put a nuclear blast on a screen that doesn't use like hokey CGI, and I think that Dark Knights is very believable. I think that the a lot of the technology, you know, the the machines in this, you know, kind of make it novel. The bat is is super cool. The uh, lending Catwoman the bat the bat pod is is great and and shout out to the gratuitous leaning scene uh, there blowing up the tunnel entrance of uh, of Miss Hathaway just leaned over that that bat cycle um, yeah guys that was obviously fan service terrible but I think the the technical aspects of this with again the the, the like the I'm going to call them missile carriers but they're they're like the the eight by eight trucks and stuff like that just having this all big dangerous equipment. There's a lot of stuff going on there. So I think I think we can give a little bit more for the physical and technical achievements of the movie being novel versus this is the third in the series and we've kind of seen a lot of this before. I'm willing to maybe come up to the six if you're going to convince me that the aerial flights in the final sequence of the bat chasing or being chased by the missiles and that kind of whole piece and the opening airplane in air sequence that was practically done. I will give it that, but dad, let's hear from you first and you can maybe bring me home. I've listened to both arguments and I would tend to agree with Rob and I'll go there, but I'm going to give it a half point down for one reason. Ooh. If I could just tell Christopher Nolan, this is a bat 
Pac-Man film. It's not Lawrence of Arabia or Dr. Shivago. It does not need to be nearly three hours long to do this. Oh, boy. Don't try to make it some sort of artistic film about Batman when you don't have the script to do it. Cut it. Cut the thing down and do it so that it can be done in a little over two hours. I'll give you a little above that for two hours, but it was boring at times. I mean, it was to the point where I'm going... I need to look at my phone because I'm bored. So I'm going to go bored. right in between with a 5.5. You probably could have very easily shaved out about 15 minutes from this movie. It was a little overstuffed with a lot of characters and a lot of cameos in this particular thing. But it's like 13 minutes longer than The Dark Knight. And I think it's maybe 15 to 18 minutes longer than Batman Begins. Like, it's really not that much different. Nolan has been making long, long, long films for most of his career. I understand, but at some point in time, you need to admit that you don't have the script to support it. Yeah, I think you're right Well, when he's the writer and his brother is the co-writer, it might be a little hard to do so. (laughs) Do you really have somebody objective to be able to hold up the mirror and say, hmm, we may not have it this time, folks? Ah, well... After all, that is the ultimate in self-introspection to understand when you haven't quite gotten to the point you wanted. Right. Have that emotional intelligence. Have that, hey, man, I can't cut it. I kind of get it, dude. I had one of those experiences last night where I was talking to one of my team. and I said, hey, man, I just really don't like that one of these competitor marketing agencies are sending their team, their team to Portugal. I think that's a bad look for their customers. And he said, I don't, I think that could be really a cool sign of success. And I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. I'm seeing my own failures in that. And that was, that's a really interesting thing. Cause I think, I think you can have that sort of introspection, which is really interesting, but maybe Mr. Nolan doesn't have it or maybe he does. He just decided not to exercise it. Well, I think it's going to be harder and harder for him to see it given the success of most of his movies. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And oh, yeah. in both a critical and audience. And this is about the peak of where he was doing because he had just come off of Batman Begins, The Prestige, Dark Knight, oh, and Inception. Mm-hmm. I love So love he had four bangers in a row and was at his absolute apex to come into this film. So, yeah, I'm sure anyone would be feeling themselves a bit, especially when Warner's threw so much money at you. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I think feeling you mentioned yourself. Ooh, not a good look. Unless you're trying to detect for cancer. That's right. You're anti-cancer on this That's program. right. Make sure that you check true. yourselves, gentlemen and ladies, check yourselves too. Lumps are bad. Or if you have someone you love. <laughs> now you're getting into pro-groping. <laughs> check them too, as with their permission. <laughs> so you never gave an official number. You just said a half point down. So I'm, is that a 5.5? 5. 5. 5. 5. All right. I... I That's can't, both my official and unofficial number. Because I want to manipulate the number in just such a way, I'm not going to come up all the way to the six. I'm going to go to a 5.75, and that will be the average. Well, I'm going to rate mine at 5.9999999, then just to mess with the math. Come on. <laughs> well, anytime we get three people on these, it, it always screws the numbers up just slightly. Right. You're we get these like, weird decimals. Thirds and sixths <laughs> and things, ninths, yeah. Yeah. 
I get classicness, you. Dad. We kind of already stepped on it a little bit for you, but I'll let you go first. I went with an eight point five simply because again, Ooh. there is so much about female importance and control in what was basically comic books were more testosterone driven, and the this film is all about the women. The women ultimately control the outcome of this. And so I have to give it kudos for that, for that very reason, which is that we have the villain and we have the savior. And I find it really interesting that ultimately Batman is saved by Catwoman who blows the shit out of Bane and says, I don't agree with your position on on guns. So, okay. So, that's a very astute point. I thought, when thinking about the diversity of this film earlier, I thought it was actually fairly limited compared to The Dark Knight when you made several good points about there being a lot of ethnicities represented in The Dark Knight. Hispanics, Blacks, Eastern Europeans, for some reason. Well, because you have Chechen men. He's like, hey, Joker man, what you do with your money? Come on. I thought this was going to be a fairly diverse, limited film, but you made a good point that I hadn't considered in Talia al Ghul and the opposite duality of both Catwoman versus Talia. Early on in the movie, you're kind of, one is the villainess, the other one's kind of the friend hookup, and by the end of the movie, their positions have flipped. And so I think that does lend an extra credibility to this I hadn't necessarily considered. but there is still an element where this movie has a lot more plot holes. It's been ripped on mostly after the fact and unfairly to a degree, I think, because it didn't live up to the Dark Knight. And it's also, to Rob's point from last week, not timeless yet. I originally had a six, but you've moved me up to a seven. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's classicness is really hard, and I'm going to stick to my point from last week, too, that you just mentioned, Tom is this movie's not old enough to be a classic yet. I think it is from a different time of superhero movies, as you mentioned earlier. And I think that that adds a little bit of classicness because, again, there's different phases. Of course, we had, you know, the Iron Man and Batman Begins phase where it's like, oh my God, like superhero movies can actually be good. Tell me more. But then this is kind of like the phase two or maybe phase three where, yes, the Marvel Cinematic Universe had kind of started to climb climb out and DC of course for some reason can never figure out what the hell to do with their cinematic universe but they got lucky with these uh in this case and I think that from a if you look at this on a truncated timetable of is it classic in the sense in the way that Jaws is classic or in the sense the way that Alien or Indiana Jones or any of these OG properties from from you know 40 50 years ago I don't think it has that kind of classicness. But if you look at it from the superhero movie lifespan, which I mean, yes, we had the late 90 or the late 80s, you know, like the the Burton Batman and things like that. But like superhero movies were just not that common prior to what? Spite the the OG Spider-Man. Yeah, so roughly 2002. 2002. I think. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. So 20 years ago so you're thinking, you're putting this in like the middle of that, you know, modern day. So it's halfway between now and the OG, like, holy shit, a superhero movie movie can be good. I think 
that redeems it if we look at it on that truncated timetable. Not in the grand scope of all cinema, but in the, the scope of, for superhero movies with big budget blockbusters, things that people make a billion dollars off of now, I think this does have some classicness. So I'm going to go uh, with eight on that. So that's a 7.83 average between the three of us. Well, that's not bad. Rewatchability. This is still better on most days than a lot of the other films. So I went a 10 for The Dark Knight. I went a 9.5 for Batman Begins. I go a 9 for this one. I'm going to go an 8 because I'd rather just watch The Dark Knight again. (laughs) I really think, I think that is what hobbles this film so much is that it's older brother just, he's the prized child. You know, it's, and I, and again, I think this is a great movie. We watch these as a trilogy all the time, but you know, Dana, as you mentioned earlier, things get a little windy in that movie. And I go, God, I just kind of wish I was watching Keith, Keith Ledger be a fucking animal on screen again. Like, you know, and so, so I will give it the eight just to be not as biased towards this film because of its older brother. Well, this to me said, this is the problem when you have three children. Which of those is ultimately, and which of them fails to live up to the hype? <laughs> wow. Why, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's why the three of you climb all over each other whenever you're together, trying to get to the pinnacle, top of the mountain, king of the hill. And it doesn't matter, be ultimately. It, it all revolves around, ultimately, the situation, the circumstances, and where you are in life and the or the events or situations you're playing in. For me, this film, there are so many other films that I love that I would rather watch. I would rather watch either the first two than this one. So I can't go, you know, seven is my benchmark. I need to watch this on a regular basis. Six is about where I'll go. If it's on, I'll watch it. I may, you know, I may get bored with it and flip over to, uh, you know, a baseball game or something like that, but I'll go with a six. Flipping over to a baseball game on television? God, that's boring. (laughs) I hate televised baseball. (laughs) I would rather watch that than a lot of things. That's true. Any reality TV. Don't get me started. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mean scripted reality TV? Yes. So that's a 7.67 between the three of us. For audience score, we had an 84% for Google users and a 90% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.7. So to recap the categories, we had a 6.83 for Legacy, a 7.33 for Impact Significance, a 5.75 for Novelty, a 7.83 for Classicness, a 7.67 for Rewatchability, and an 8.7 for audience score, giving us a final total of... 44.4 44.11. That is way lower than I thought it was. 44.11. So Ooh. it is currently between Meet the Parents and Top Gun. Which I'm surprised is rated so lowly on your damn list. <laughs> we have kind of a bell curve when it comes to this show. We have a lot of movies that, because a certain co-host of mine gives a lot of sevens and eights and sixes and whatever else, that we have this pretty big glut between about 40 points and 50 points. 
And then we have some supremely great films above 50 points that I would count as like the must-see movies. And then we have this really terrible grade under about 40 points where anything that's like, especially 35 and under, are terrible movies. Mind you, some of those that are on the under 35 side, and there's only about a dozen of those. There's fewer, dude. There's like a half. I'm looking at the list. There's half of them. Oh, no, yeah. There's maybe five. The Help, which we did right (laughs) after George Floyd. The Quiet Man, Wedding Crashers, because the two people that I had on it just absolutely ripped that movie apart. Victory, which is (laughs) terrible. The Greatest Show on Earth, possibly one of the worst Best Picture winners ever. And The Room, which we did as a joke. Yes. Yeah. So there's no film that has gotten below 20 yet, but there's always a first. Yes. By the way, when are we doing uh, Gone with the Wind? Episode 200, so we're 27 away. I know I'm going to get a lot of backlash from females in my family and friends list. Because you call them females? Yes. Women. Thank you. In my friend list, because... You know, it's the romance, but I, I have such a hard time dealing with the lost cause aspect of that film. Okay, I, I'm probably going to be there with you, but let's wait 27 episodes before we get all the hate mail. We we have Casablanca and 2001 A Space Odyssey coming up to worry about. <sighs> I'm afraid I can't let you do that, Dana. Rob would be our Hell 9000. <laughs> yes. Would you like to do uh, a Birth of a Nation with us, Rob? Ooh. No, don't. don't. Ooh, no. Don't suffer through that one. No. Way. We're going to have to. Uh, I've seen the film once. I will have to, unfortunately, see it a second time, and that's two times too many. Yes. Yeah. And yet the impact significance is going to be high on that film. Well, I know. That's sad. I should remind everybody, if you disagree with our scores, uh, you can contact us at at Gmote Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and we also have a Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Or you can contact the website at ronnieduncanstudios.com slash Podcast. Remaining questions. Why did we need to stick in the Robin ending? It feels more tacked on than any other tacked on part of this film. It was simply left there because uh, my guess is studio insistence because if they wanted to do a fourth movie with a different director, they had an option where Robin would be the the hero. Right. Do you want me to give best case scenario on this? Okay. The whole movie, the conversation between Bruce Wayne and John Blake has been the purpose of Batman is that anybody can be Batman. So we put John Blake and we allow him to become Batman and find the Batcave. Except that we undermine it then by saying he's Robin and he's connected to the character lore and the comic books. If you really wanted it to be the everyman, don't even drop the Robin hint. Just let John Blake find the Batcave and become the next character or whatever Yeah, because that kind of double dips. You can't be Batman and Robin. You're one or the other. But what I'm saying is, is that if you want an everybody ending that anybody can be Batman, 
Yes. You're undermining it by saying only Robin can become the next Batman. Right. Somebody because... who is comic connected as opposed to just somebody ordinary. Right. Whereas if you don't identify John Blake as Robin, he's just some street detective. Exactly. Like, which, yeah, that's awesome. I like that. Next one. How long does the Bruce Wayne, Selena Kyle relationship last? Oh, for a long, long oh, time. Oh, yeah. And it's antagonistic. It's antagonistic. Well, not just that. Did you see how high she kicked? Wow. <laughs> wow. Uncomfortable. Yes. But no, no, they, they, they are old flames for the next 30 or 40 years until they finally settle down together, realizing that they're, they're meant for each other. But they just, they, it's, it's on again, off again, on again, off again, on again, off again. And it's, there's a lot of, the like, sadomasochism involved yeah. in that relationship for the first five to ten years. Wow. Well, both of their origins comes from trying to steal to feed themselves or coming out of their own disparity. So even though Bruce Wayne comes from means, he belittles or humbles himself to the point where he's in a Chinese prison. So I think there is some background that's similar for both of them, and they don't need resources in order to survive. They're pretty good at doing that on their own. Doesn't matter because they imply that there were resources. So and it was all given to Alfred, who then transfers it over. He had about two or three million dollars to live. He could live very comfortably on what he had available. That wasn't the point. The point was whether the two of them were compatible enough and wow. I mean, you could have taken that ending scene of Alfred looking over at Bruce and, and Selena and just put Lady Gaga's bad romance over it. Just, I want you loving, I want your revenge. You know, just really just pump that song on there because that's what it is. Remaining questions for either of you before we get to the rest of my nitpicks. There were so many holes in this. I mean, I, I, I don't know where to go other than that. Okay, so let's assume that the autopilot worked with the bat, and he's hauling the... Where did he go? I mean, did he jump out over Gotham? Oh, did he God. jump out over the bay? If that's the case, how did he get back? I mean, there's just so many holes in this. Bat jet ski. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. I, see, I don't see that as much of a hole because he could have jumped out in a lot of places. He has his cape that allows him to glide, and he's capable of disappearing. He does it through all three films. So that one doesn't nearly bother me as much as you have like 30 seconds left and you're supposed to go six miles with the bat. That's supposedly going to be enough of a blast radius so that nobody else is like detrimentally affected. I mean, the way that that bomb or it going off looked, that thing had to be like 15, 20 miles away. There's absolutely no way. And the radioactivity splashing back on that, you're not really saving the city. Depends on the wind direction, but yeah, you're absolutely right. The other thing too is that like just the distance to cover, unless that bat thing has an overdrive of like, hey man, punch the engines to the limit. I mean, even a, a fast helicopter can only go a couple hundred miles an hour. Scotty, we need to be at a warp speed. Yeah, and unless he's got something that can go two, three hundred miles an hour, which I don't think he does. I think he just turned Gotham into every island in the nearing vicinity of Bikini Atoll. <laughs> or Chernobyl, yeah. 
Uh, 20 years from now, they'll all be dealing with cancer. Whose thyroid is big today? I don't know, Bill. <laughs> Rob, do you have anything else? Uh, you know, my question, my one question, and I don't know if this is a plot hole or anything like that, but like, who's the idiot who sent all the police into the sewer system? Who, who is, who at that level of government is dumb enough to say, we need to send thousands of police officers underground, thousands of police officers, all the police officers underground. Like I'm thinking, you know, Gotham is akin to Chicago or, or New York city. It's kind of an amalgam of the two. I know that at least from what I've heard, uh, Metropolis for Superman is Chicago and Gotham is much more of a New York style. They have features of both. But, like, the NYPD is, what, like 29,000 officers? Like, you couldn't take 500 guys and send them down there? Who's in charge of this? It is so unbelievable that an entire massive city's police force would go underground. Except that's what Jim Gordon ordered. You've never really had to deal with government on a large scale, have you? I don't like them. <laughs> I, I, I have on a regular basis. The level of stupidity of senior management in government is mind-boggling. Great. Thanks. I mean, I I, I honestly and say... And you'll only deal with uh, more bureaucracy as you get older. Yes. Great. <laughs> and uh, I've said all along that uh, the recruiting poster or tool that they use is stupid, unable to complete your degree, <laughs> lacking in any skill or ability, applied to government services administration, of the United States government because we'll create all kinds of weird things where nothing makes any sense. We'll put the checkpoint for a uh, room in the back and let everybody come 30 feet into the room among a bunch of people before security checks to whether or not they should be there or they're armed. Or they have a bomb, yeah. Oh, God. <sighs> that happens regularly. Yeah. Okay, but... Let me at least give the counterfactual on some of this. Most people, it, it's it's like the common issue that I have with politicians. All the good people with sense know not to get into it in the first place because they don't want to handle all the bullshit that the rest of the public's slinging. You get absolutely no credit and you can do a good job and no one will thank you ever for it. Mm. Okay. And so it is probably one of the worst jobs to have. So you have to staff it with anybody you can find that at least is like halfway decent because all the best people aren't going to take those jobs. They've got better opportunities elsewhere. Years ago, my boss asked me why I won or it was appointed or elected to the school board, why I wanted to be on the school board. And I said, well, I'm a father. I'm on the church council. I'm a husband. I've been involved in democratic politics. What's one more thankless position for me to take on? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because our school board here in Port Washington is not doing a very good job to the point where it has attracted the attention of yours truly, a married but childless man who hates the government. I'm about to show up at one of their meetings and be like, y'all have attracted, like, if I'm interested in how bad you guys are screwing this up, there is a massive problem. Holy crap. Like, you you have got me to waste my free time by coming here. Anyway, I have one final thing, and I think it's probably the most ridiculous thing in the entire film. 
the reason that you forgive your father, who you feel have mortally wounded you because the person that took care of you after he abandoned you and you cast him out, you forgive him because he's murdered by somebody else and then take on his mission as your own? It feels a little far-fetched. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right, gentlemen, it has been a pleasure being with both of you again. Unless you guys have some more remaining questions, I think this is probably as good a spot as I'm going to find to kind of wrap things up. So once again, Rob, thank you very much for being on your seventh time on the show. And uh, tell everybody about Westport Studios. Yeah, uh, Westport Studios is a full-service B2B podcast agency. If you have a company that is looking for a new sales tool or a new marketing tool, we are probably a great uh, person to talk to when it comes to figuring out if a podcast is some way to actually get you some relationships and some revenue. Uh, you can find us at westportstudiosllc.com, or you can always connect with me on LinkedIn. I love hearing from from folks who are at any phase of their podcast journey. Tom, you know, you and I have been uh, kind of on this trek for, uh, it's pushing towards half a decade now, which is kind of weird. Yeah, it's four years in this case. And that's, you know, I, I like to help folks, with their, whether it's a hobby version like this is, or whether it's something that can actually help change your company's bottom line. That's what I'm all about. And I've got a great team that works with me. And again, you can find us at westportstudiosllc.com uh, or linkedin.com slash uh, Westport Rob. I think it'll get you to me, which would be great. So I'm going to do a small private victory for myself about yeah. the time that we get to the end of February, early part of March next year, because we will have been around longer than the Trump administration. And I take that as a personal victory. Yay. By the way, you've done a trilogy for your birthday, and I have two years in a row asked for a particular film for my birthday, and you just No, you've only mm. asked for it one time. What is it? And I don't make that your date or that your birthday is around a particular holiday, which is going to be hard for me to edit. So if you would like to edit, I'd be glad to do the four-hour version of JFK that you want to do. Because I have a feeling it's going to need to turn into its own miniseries. Yeah. Hey, stretch that out to two, two or three episodes, man. Go for it. I'd be editing that thing in perpetuity. <laughs> it will never get done. Good deal. Uh, yeah, and especially well. if we have anybody on to stoke his conspiracies. Oh, boy. They're not conspiracies. They're facts. Okay. <laughs> I'm just poking at you now. Anyway. I know. Quick thoughts, Dad. I loved Indiana Jones. There were some holes. Oh, you saw it, yeah. Yeah, it was We talked about film. it last week, yeah. I loved it. I think it's worth going to see. I saw The Sound of Freedom over the weekend. Yeah. It, the film itself about uh, sex trafficking and abduction of uh, children from third world countries and such has some merit. It's a good film. It's well done. It's worth watching. Don't buy into the the whole QAnon theory, but it's worth watching. I thought it was good. And I'm really looking forward to seeing both Oppenheimer and Barbie. And I specifically tried to schedule it because Oppenheimer is going to make me think. And Barbie is going to be hilarious. And I wanted to end the night laughing so that I could sleep. I'll spend all day Sunday driving home 
contemplating the meaning of Oppenheimer. And the, and the effects of nuclear war, yes. <laughs> well, it's not just that. Nolan specifically said part of his whole thought process of this was to emphasize the potential of AI. Interesting. And how it could destroy humanity. Oh, sure. That it's a, it's a bomb without being a bomb. Got it, yeah. Yep. Oh, I know about that because my industry is rife with AI right now, but it's not putting up, yeah. if you ask me. It's great. <laughs> Final thought for me. I know Adam's not on the episode this week, but Thomas Mapother the Fourth did it again. Mission Impossible Seven is fantastic. Jeez. Really, it might be one of the best ones, if not the best one that I've seen. It is about the best thing that I can think. I, I Rogue Nation for me is still like one of my favorites. I I loved that movie. I was not a huge fan of Fallout. I know that goes against the grain for most people, but. I felt in this one just about as good as I did watching Rogue Nation. Absolutely incredible. I give my stamp of approval. And this weekend, Barbenheimer. I haven't visited the Mission Impossible franchise since I was high school, and we were listening to Limp Bizkit as the the, uh, the soundtrack to it, so I might have to go see that one, Tom. Good call. You don't have to go through all of them, but just start with like Ghost Protocol and just watch through. It's it's an entertaining like six seven hours or whatever else to kill. So it was one of my favorite television shows when I was a kid. Right. But anyway, that's gonna do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. We'll always have Paris. Next week we again revisit one of our favorite films on the show, Casablanca from 1942, directed by Michael Curtiz, written by Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch. Music by Max Steiner. Starring Humphrey Bogart, Claude Rains, Ingrid Bergman, Peter Lorre, and Sidney Greenstreet. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduckinstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Grace Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>